Our scripture today is Second uh, Peter three, ten through thirteen. It says, "But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be?" in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. All right. He just read this. World's coming apart, right? He was just talking about that, the drought. I live in the drought area. Uh, But I was just driving between Baton Rouge and New Orleans last weekend. Interstate 10, water's high on both sides. So the gators decided they wanted to place the sun. You ought to see all the roadkill alligators along Interstate 10. Uh, I've never seen that many dead alligators alongside the road. (laughs) But, yeah, things are, are changing. And if this whole world is going to be coming apart, The point was of that text, what kind of people should we be? We're going to talk about being forgiven and renewed. To be ready to meet Jesus Christ. So, in the evening, we're going to talk about Daniel 11. The telling us what is coming. And today, I'm going to be talking a little bit about the how to be ready for it. And I'm still working on exactly what I'm going to do next Sabbath. I've got a couple options I'm trying to choose between. (laughs) Um, But anyway. Oh, as far as tonight, opening night is tonight at 5.45. You said, yeah, but you had a meeting last night. I did, but we repeat at 5.45. So we have two opening presentations. If you miss any, always, let me put it this way, always the 7.30 material is the new material. The next night at 5.45 it will be repeated. So you can come every other day and get everything. And it doesn't matter which every other day, it'll still work for you. All right? And that's why we do it that way. How many people typically can come 10 days in a row and still have their normal life? Gets a lot easier when you come every other day and can still make it. So, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you, and when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness, and of judgment of sin, because they do not believe in me, of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. So the Holy Spirit will convict us of sin, righteousness, and tell us things to come. If you want to be ready to meet Jesus Christ, you need to be listening to the Holy Spirit. And some people tell me the Holy Spirit doesn't talk to me. (laughs) And I just say, really? 
You've never heard, don't do it, don't do it. Oh man, you shouldn't have done that. Now you need to ask forgiveness. You never heard that little voice that can be screaming at you at some points. Now, there are times the Holy Spirit will speak to you in flat out direct statements and words very clearly if you're listening. But usually it's just that, you know, you shouldn't be doing that kind of feeling that you're getting. Or, you should be. You need to go do something to help that person. You need to go help in this way or do this. That's righteousness. If I ignore ignore the Holy Spirit when he tells me don't do a wrong thing and I go ahead and do it, we call it a sin usually, right? What is it when he tells me to go do something good and I don't do it? That's still rebellion, which would be a sin, wouldn't it? We need to learn to listen. We really do. Jesus also said this, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now, you look at that and think, yeah, Jesus wants to be accept, us to be accepting his death on our behalf. He wants us to be spending time with him, his word. His disciples didn't hear it that way. They took it very literally. If you want to be ready to meet Jesus or at the coming of Christ when he comes in his kingdom, uh, you're supposed to eat him? It was a very hard saying. I mean, what, what are you supposed to do? Take him by the hand and start chewing and drink the blood and eat the... He lost almost all his disciples that day. He looks at Peter and said, are you going to go too? Peter basically says, if we had somebody, if we had somewhere better to go, not a real strong endorsement. <laughs> well, we don't have anywhere better to go, so we're going to stick with you. Wow. Now, sometimes we remember things we heard when we were kids. You were referencing back to something you heard about the chimney this morning. I remember one when I was a little younger. It was in a Pathfinder club. And it was about blood transfusions and how Jesus can prepare us to be ready to meet him. It was about a little boy His sister was sick and in need of a blood transfusion. It was early on in blood transfusion times. And they asked the little boy if he would be willing to give blood so his sister could live. He wasn't quite so sure about that idea. He thought about it. And he decided to give blood so his sister could live. And they took some blood from him and gave it to his sister. Now, if you've ever around somebody who really needs a transfusion, a little bit of blood makes all the difference in the world. And she's doing really well with this, but he's not doing very well. He's kind of pale, he's withdrawn, and the doctor's worried. And the doctor says, son, tell me, what's wrong? And the little boy looks at the doctor and said, and when am I going to die? He had just agreed to give his blood, meaning all of it, so his sister could live. He thought he was die. Now, Jesus did give it all and died for us. But I learned a better 
example of what Jesus really did than a blood transfusion. That's a parable, but it didn't go far enough. I learned this other story through my daughter, Jennifer. Here's Jennifer uh, as a junior down in Southwestern Adventist University. And she's a wellness major at this point. And give you a little idea. Here's Jennifer, a little younger, a couple of preemie twins. We've had about 40 foster kids. Uh, these two would come home with us at six weeks of age, still both under five pounds, one of which could not sustain life in a car seat. We had to have a car bed to bring him home. You set him up, his heart would stop. Those are challenging kids to raise. Uh, we have no idea how many times we've resuscitated. Many times a day sometimes. Uh, but they survived. All right? We called it our crazy year. We had three kids under the age of one, and these two were a challenge. Uh, my daughter Jennifer loved it, praise the Lord, because we had to feed them every two hours around the clock. So I would get up with one of my daughters. My wife would get up two hours later with another daughter. That meant you got to sleep about three hours at a shot. By the way, pray for me today, too, because I am sleepy. Um, I knew last night when I was preaching, I, migraine was starting to kick in. And uh, on the way down to the house where I was staying, it, it hit me. And I thought, oh, I take my medication, I won't be able to sleep. Sometimes I can just go to bed and knock these things off. And maybe a few minutes before my alarm rang, I finally got a nap. So I'm sleepy. I hope to take a nap this afternoon. So if I wobble on you, that's what it is. <laughs> Thankfully, the migraine is finally gone. Now, here's Jennifer, a little older, down in Ecuador on a mission trip. Jennifer just loved sharing Jesus with people and living for Jesus. Uh, she's with a couple of Bible workers that are looking out the window there. By the way, this is not an area in this neighborhood that the U.S. State Department would be pleased that we were in. Uh, I was with two Bible workers, and she was with two Bible workers, and we actually met at each other that day, and that's while we were out there, and I took a picture. Uh, we were able to plant a brand-new church on that trip in a city that had never had a Seventh-day Adventist church. We also like things like rock climbing and stuff. And Jennifer actually is the one down here about to go upside down to show you don't fall out of your sit harness when you pop upside down. Uh, I've had two of my four kids become rock climbing instructors in youth camps. Now, here's my daughter, Jennifer. She was working at a place called Camp Yorktown Bay. She was girls' director. She's got her arms around the boys' director. A month later, they would be engaged. I will say, probably the best spot to meet a future spouse is in ministry. It's a lot better than meeting in bars like a lot of people do. <laughs> and uh, so they were short, engaged shortly thereafter. Um, here's Jennifer a couple of months later. Do you see her? She's the one with a mask and no hair. Things changed over 
Thanksgiving weekend. Jennifer had been running a fever, just on and off, on and off, and uh, she's losing weight. And we said, man, you need to go get checked out. We're thinking, you know, something minor probably. And she said, I'm, you know, I'm busy and I don't have a doctor here. And we said, hey, you're going on Thanksgiving to Matthew's house, Bonnerdale, Arkansas. They'll have a family doctor make an appointment. She, so she did. She went to this little do- doctor's clinic and they decided they'd test her blood. They took some blood and they put it in a machine and it didn't work. They put somebody else's blood in the machine at work. They put her blood back in it and it wouldn't work. So they sent her to a hospital, Hot Springs. They run a test there. And this is Wednesday night. Thanksgiving's the next morning. We're just sitting down in Maryland for supper Wednesday night. We're planning my daughter's wedding, my older daughter's wedding. She was home for Thanksgiving. And the phone rings and I walked over there. And Jennifer says, Dad, they just did a blood test at the hospital. I have a super high white cell count and they just called for an oncologist. Oh man, I could read between the lines on that one. We're dealing with leukemia. Now which type of leukemia? Well, they put her on an air ambulance on Friday, the day after Thanksgiving, and flew her from, well, they'd moved her to Little Rock, to University Hospital, and put her in a positive air pressure room because she had no immune system. From there, they put her on air ambulance on Friday and flew her to Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland. And uh, they began the first round of chemo, which was 30-some days of hospitalization. I don't know if you know what leukemia chemo's like. It's not like any other because they're trying to kill you down to the core of your being, down into your bone marrow. They're going to hold you right on the edge of death while they're trying to beat that leuke- the bone marrow cells that are producing white cells that are actually your immune cells. Your white cells are your cancer, microscopic cancer. And so they began that, and right before my oldest daughter's wedding in December, they walked into Jennifer's hospital room and said, Girl, you're going to your sister's wedding. Four-hour leave. They had to prepare for several days to get her out of the hospital for four hours. She couldn't touch. She was not supposed to touch people. She couldn't touch a plant because she has no real effective immune system. But she made it there that day. It was wonderful to be together. And she was out for four hours and made it back to Johns Hopkins. The wedding was in Hagerstown. Then uh, she got out for Christmas time. This is obviously later than that. And we've discovered the leukemia was not beaten back by that first round of chemo. So they went to put her back in in January for another round. 
this would be 40-some days. It was such a strong chemo that she was not allowed to take one bite or one calorie for 21 days. Because if she took any food into her system, it would destroy her digestive tract. So it's IV for 21 days. Um, Eventually, she gets out after those 40-some days. And uh, we have spring break. Her fiancé, Matthew, down at Southwestern, is going to get out of school for spring break. And she's out of the hospital, and they're hoping to get together at our house. Except he has to have surgery as soon as he gets out on spring break. He's got a torn rotator cuff. So his dad picks him up as soon as he can when he's out of his last class, takes him to a hospital. They put, put him through surgery on the rotator cuff. He comes out, gets in the car. Dad takes him to the airport, hops in a plane, flies to Maryland. I pick him up and take him to see Jennifer. <laughs> Day or so later, Jennifer walks up to me. She says, Dad, I feel like a teeny bopper, but Matthew and I would like to go out on a date. His arm's in a sling. He's on pain meds. He shouldn't drive. I'm on all kinds of meds. I shouldn't drive. We need a chauffeur. <laughs> so I take my engaged daughter and her fiancé out for a date. <laughs> and uh, we went to a little, took him to a little tiny restaurant at about three in the afternoon when nobody would be there. Because pre-COVID, we had our experience about being really, really careful. Because Jennifer has to remove her mask to take a bite. She really doesn't have a working immune system. And I take them there and I drop them off. And I, it was a rainy day, so I headed to Walmart to walk circles. It was just half mile away. Not that I like shopping, but it's better than walking in the rain. I'm walking, I'm walking in the front door and my phone rings. I just put my phone up to my ear and said, hello, may I help you? And I hear Jennifer, Dad, come get us now. I said, okay, and she hung up. I thought, wow, that wasn't even request. That was a definite command. Now, I have watched while I'm preaching, my wife and my daughter whisper, and then they get up and walk out, and I see the car leaving, and I know that Jennifer just got a fever or something, and she's headed to Johns Hopkins. I mean, it could turn within minutes. So I'm wondering what happened, but it was Jennifer that called, so at least she's conscious. (laughs) I head for the little restaurant just a couple of minutes away, and I pull into the parking lot, and I get out of the car, and there's my daughter standing behind the glass door waiting for me, but inside the restaurant. I opened the door and I said, Jennifer, what is it? She says, Dad, it's Matthew. That's her fiancé. As she's saying that, I'm noticing that the whole restaurant crew is standing behind the counter and they look like they've seen something they don't like. They look very upset. But I don't see Matthew. And she says, Dad, it's Matthew. And she looked over, pointed over to the side and I turn and kind of just back around the corner there There's Matthew laying face down over a table. I could tell he was breathing. 
I turned back to her and I said, what happened? She said, Dad, he just got a phone call. His dad was killed yesterday in a fiery crash. They just identified his body. They thought the man that was with him was his wife because they couldn't tell after the fire. I walked over and put my arms around Matthew and I cried with him. Got their food and headed home. Found out Matthew's suit, my suit fits Matthew and I put him on an airplane to go to his dad's funeral. Day or so later, Jennifer still hasn't been forced back into the hospital yet. And uh, we go to the hospital, they've run some tests, and we're going to get a report. Happens to be during Matthew's dad's funeral. And as we're sitting there, the doctor comes in. And I've learned to watch body language, and the guy's twisting his pen as he walks in the door, and I know he's coming to tell us bad news. And we sit down, and he begins to tell us that the Leukemia is back. They haven't been able to beat it back. And he says, actually, there's nothing else we can do. And he begins to describe the steps she will go through as she dies. There's a tear that trickles down Jennifer's face. She grabs a tissue. She dabs it. She sits up straight. And the attitude is really clear. Leukemia may kill me, but it will never beat me. She turns to my wife and says, how am I going to tell Matthew? He knows she's in there getting a report. He's going to be asking when he gets out of his dad's funeral, he's going to call her and say, how did it go? And she's going to have to say, well, they just told me I'm not making it either. It was a bad combination for the day. But a few days later, they'd just given her a blood transfusion and she wanted to go see the cherry blossoms in Washington, D.C. I took a wheelchair with us, but she would not get in it. She had a blood transfusion And she has energy. She can walk. Thank you. She will not get in that. (laughs) And so we went and looked at this. Um, It was about somewhere, um, probably around Christmas time, actually. I'd walked into her room. I'd been praying late at night. And I walked in and I listened for a little bit, and I came to the conclusion that Jennifer was awake. She knew I was there. And I said, Jennifer, I've just been praying for you that God will heal you and you will be a living testimony for him. I was thinking of all these kids that go to Camp Yorktown Bay and stuff that loved her. And if God would heal her, what a power that would be. And here's the words I heard back in the night when I said that. She said, yeah, Dad, that would be nice but I have friends that claim they're Christian and they're not. And if God would use my death to reach them, I'm okay with that. Hmm. That's both beautiful and hard to hear from your kid. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, so now that they've told her that she's not going to make it, I slipped in her room again late one night (laughs) and she's awake. And I said, Jennifer, is there anywhere you'd like, anywhere you'd like to go or anything you'd like to do? 
And again, I can't see her face. It's dark. And I hear this. Yeah, Dad, how about a trip to Hawaii? Nice, cheerful voice. Uh, And I pause for a little bit because I'm going through the finances to see if I can figure out how to bankroll this. And I said, are you serious? And she laughed at me. She says, of course I'm not serious. But how about a trip to Keene, Texas? And now she was. Hawaii or Keene? Oh, she has friends in Keene. That's where she wants to be. And God worked a series of miracles, and we went there. And from there, we went to M.D. Anderson in Houston, where she began to do experimental medications. And eventually, school got out. My daughter graduated, my older daughter. And right after graduation, all of a sudden, students showed up in her room. You know, how many hospital rooms have enough room for 16 or more people at a time? This hospital room, you notice they're sitting on a couch. There were two hide-a-bed, queen-size hide-a-bed couches in that room, and there was room to pull both of them out. My wife is seated at a desk. I'm standing in a corner. There's a couple of recliner chairs in this room. There's two TVs because it's laid out L-shaped and you can't maybe, you could have two different programs going in that big room if you want. How did she get that room? A couple of weeks before, they gave up on her and said, we need to put you in palliative care. And the medical staff had fallen in love with Jennifer. They started taking their breaks in her room even though she's now going into palliative care and they're not, she's no longer her patient, their patient, doctors and nurses. But they said it's peaceful with Jennifer. It's just nice to be with her. So they gave her a room they had for VIPs, you know, royalty and stuff like that from different countries. When they put her in palliative care, they gave her the best room they had. We didn't know why we needed this big room until all of a sudden it starts getting filled up with college students. God knows what he's doing. And so I was standing in the corner when I took this picture. One of those young people later in the day came over to me and said, you know, I was raised in a pastor's family. But watching Jennifer, I realized I'm not really a Christian. What do I do? From the very spot I took that picture, they had their back to Jennifer, and Jennifer was sleeping at the moment when I share a gospel presentation with this young person, and they accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior for real. And in my head, I have these words ringing, but Dad, I have friends that claim they're Christian, but they're not. And if God would use my death to reach them, I'm okay with that. Man, that was on Sabbath, Friday night, actually, we were singing. And as kids, when my kids were little, we would sing this little light of mine. 
and we'd hold our fingers up on Friday night as we sang. Jennifer was sleeping, and we were singing this little light of mine, and my wife nudges me, and Jennifer's finger comes up, her eyes kind of open, and then she starts singing along with us. I can only tell you, several people gave their lives to Jesus Christ, young and old. But that was Friday and Sabbath. Tuesday morning at sunrise, she died. Sin is like leukemia. It's deadly. It will kill you, especially if you leave it alone. But I learned that sin is really like leukemia. You see, what do you need? You need to stop the leukemia. That's what they're trying the chemo for. But even if the chemo is effective, it's not enough. What do you need? You need a stem cell transplant. Bone marrow transplant. And you have to have the perfect donor. You see, there are eight characteristics that they're going to look at. They would like a six, seven, or eight out of eight match. The closer to eight out of eight, the better. However, if you have an identical twin, you cannot use their bone marrow. Why? Because it would be the same as yours. And you would put that bone marrow in, it would go right into the bones after they pretty well kill everything in your bones. They give you a new bone marrow, it goes in, sets up shop, and there will still be a few leukemia cells tucked out there somewhere. And that new bone marrow will start to produce white cells and they go out and they find a leukemia-producing cell and they do a check and the, bone, and the DNA matches and they let it go and the leukemia will come back to kill you. So they need somebody that's almost the same as you but not quite like you. Because the leukemia will be killed in the rejection battle that gets fought. So you're actually looking for a small rejection battle, just not too much. Because if they're not close enough to you, the rejection battle will kill you. Too much like you, leukemia kills you. Too much not like you, then that'll kill you. Believe it or not, blood type is only one out of the eight, and it doesn't have to be a match. Why? Because this is going to change you so much, you're going to end up with your donor's blood type. I've heard some interesting stories of things that happen to people after these things and the changes that happen in their bodies. So, let's take a look at something. Oh, I should tell you, there was not one known matching donor for Jennifer in the whole world registry. My wife was a four out of eight. I was a four out of eight. They need six or better. But they could never get her leukemia down to the point of being ready for a bone marrow transplant. First John says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a little bit like the chemo. It's not really fun, but you have to admit you're wrong. You have to ask forgiveness. And sometimes that means going to people and asking forgiveness. And it can get a little messy, get a little uncomfortable, but it ends up helping you out dramatically. It's kind of like the chemo, but it's not enough. 
Not only does he cleanse us, he changes us. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. God comes into our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit and changes us from the inside out, just like a bone marrow transplant does. He cleanses us and then he changes us. Now, I actually believe God can use anything for good. Do you believe that? He's taken the worst thing that ever happened, which was my daughter dying in my arms. And he used it for good. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. Satan can't touch my daughter anymore. She died trusting in Jesus Christ. That's not bad in the long run. It's not about how long we spend on this life or how good we have it in this life. It's how we spend the next one that really counts. So he can take the worst that ever happens to you and use it for good, but what about the worst you've ever done? Let me briefly do that. When I was a kid... High school, I was collecting antique bottles. It's a great hobby. I actually made hundreds of dollars off my hobby instead of it costing me money like all my friends. Their hobbies cost them money. I was making money off mine. It was an ongoing treasure hunt. Of course, every once in a while, I did get shot at. (sighs) Poking around on the back of somebody's farm looking for a dump or whatever. Uh, The worst I got shot at was actually from when I got, I actually had permission to be on that farm. I got permission from a drunk man. Not a good idea. He was pretty drunk. After he gave me permission, he went and put a tin can on a T-post and took his rifle and started shooting at that T-post on that can. I was behind it in a little valley out there digging bottles. And my buddy and I were laying in the broken glass and stuff in this little old dump because we could hear those bullets. They'd come through, hit the T-post and the can, and you didn't know where the next one was coming. It was coming somewhere in the general vicinity. And you could hear them coming like hornets after they're ricocheting a little bit. Ding! Ding! (laughs) But this particular day, we're out there, and it's March. April, somewhere in there. There's still patches of snow in Michigan. But it's a warm day, and we're out bottle hunting on bicycles. Why? If you drive in and ask permission, they will say no. You come in as two high school kids on bicycles, and some of them will have sympathy and say, oh, go ahead if you want to go looking for an old dump on the back of the property. So we come into this house, and we realize as we're coming in the driveway, nobody's been here for a while because there's a snow drift over the driveway with no tracks in it. And this is as it's melting off. So it's been a long time since anybody's been down this driveway. We get back to the house and we knock on the wind door. And right beside the door, there's this window. And in, on the inside of the window, on the windowsill, is an old antique bottle, hand-blown glass from the 1800s. It's got a daffodil in it. It's been hanging there probably from last spring, uh, last, a year ago. Or longer. Huh. Nobody's been here for a long time. And there's old bottles around here. So 
What we did is we knocked so we could ask permission. Unfortunately, we had another way of getting permission. If nobody's home, we took it as permission. So we went out in the woods and looked for a dump, didn't find anything, looked under some of the old sheds and stuff and the crawl spaces under them, found some milk bottles, but they were machine-made, and the bottle in the window was hand-blown glass. We went, and we're now in the backyard, and you couldn't see the backyard from the street because of lilac hedges and other things and the way the house was set in an L-shape. And there was this little dip in the yard. We knew it was one of three things. An old outhouse. And an old outhouse is a good spot to find opium bottles. Because in the 1800s, opium, you could buy it over the counter, but people still didn't want to admit that they were using it. And so they'd throw these little bottles down in the outhouse. And a 100-year-old outhouse is just good black dirt. It could be an old trash pit. That's good digging, too. Or a current active septic system, and we're hoping it's not that. <laughs> and so we take our little bottle hunting hose out that we made specially for this, and we just peel the grass back and roll it up like carpet, you know, like you can buy sod in a roll, right? Well, we just roll it back and as we're doing it, we're hitting all kinds of pieces of glass. It's an old trash pit. And it, it was about that deep. And we just dug down until we hit old dirt and stuff and we came around it. And they burned it really hot. And most of those hand-blown glass bottles that were in there were melted. We found a couple that were intact. Parker hair balsam, stuff like that. We would grow hair back on anything if you ever found one with the paper label still on it. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> So it's hand-blown glass, but it's really etched. The bottle in the window has no etching on it. So we put the dirt back in, roll the grass back, and I'm stomping down on it trying to pack it down. And I'm thinking, it's March in Michigan. This stuff's all going to grow back just fine. (laughs) My buddy walks to the back of the house, and there's an old door held on by four bent nails. And he starts twisting nails with his fingers, and the door falls off in his hands. He sets it to the side, and I'm standing there thinking, is, is, isn't this what they call breaking and entering? That is exactly what it is. And he disappeared into the darkness. And I'm out there thinking, now what am I going to do? He came out a moment later holding a tall, amber, hand-blown glass bottle. It has a pine tree embossed in it. It says WQT. Wishart's Pine Tree Tar Cordial. It's got a complete paper label on it. Man, that would cure anything, according to the label. Do you know how those old, what they call patent medicines, could cure almost anything? They had enough cocaine, opium, or alcohol in it that as long as you took it, you didn't know you were sick. That's why we got a Federal Drug Administration is to stop that stuff. But anyway, he had that. He laid it down, and we both knew it was worth somewhere between $50 and $150. He laid it by his little backpack, and he turned around to go back in. Only this time he had company. I was with him. You see, we were in a back room, dirt floor, where they stored firewood and all kinds of stuff. It had a little door that went on into the rest of the house. It was just a, like a little storm door, 
and it wasn't locked. I know I played with it. And my buddy and I looked at it and shook our heads. We're not going into living quarters. Our, we have our limits on how far we'll break and enter. We know it's not a bottle collector that has this place because these old bottles that are 100 years old are jammed under the wooden beams around the edges. They have got shoved back trash 100 years ago. And so we filled our backpacks full of these old bottles that were in there. That's how I know that a Parker hair balsam will go hair back on anything. One of those had a paper label on it and from there too. And we filled our backpacks up, put the door back, you know, that still small voice kept screaming at me, um, don't do this. But I have a good excuse. I'm just taking out some really old trash that I know is worth a lot of money. Filled my backpack, and like I said, if we haven't done anything wrong, why did we listen for a while to make sure there were no cars coming down that country road before we pushed our bikes around the corner? We rode over the first little hill. We gave each other a high five. We got away with it. Except for the still small voice. Um, I ended up moving away. Graduated academy from Ozark Academy. Went backpacking for a semester and showed up at Keene in January to start my freshman year halfway through everybody else's freshman year. And they did cash my check my room deposit and check, and I had a letter of acceptance, and I got there, and they said, oh, we're so sorry, but our dorm is full. I said, I have the letter of acceptance. You cash my check. Figure something out. I'm here. <laughs> and uh, they said, would you be willing to go live off campus? We bought a hotel, Finley, across the street, and that's for upperclassmen. Would you be willing to go down there with the upperclassmen? I'm thinking, let's see, as a freshman, I have to give my, for the first semester, I have to give my keys to the dean. I can drive my truck, but only with permission. I go down there, I park my truck at the door, and I can come and go at will. Well, sure, I'll go down there. <laughs> and uh, so I went down there, but I was kind of a broke college student, so I didn't drive my truck a lot. And I would walk back and forth across that big front yard. And it was like God put a bullseye on that front yard. Tim, remember those old bottles you took? Yeah. You shouldn't have done that. Yeah, I know. Lord, I was wrong. Please forgive me. Am I forgiven? If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness, right? Now, as I keep walking back and forth across that yard, it changes just a little bit. Tim? I want you to make it right. <clears throat> I don't want to. This is no longer about convicting me of sin. This is telling me I need to go do something for him. This is convicting me of righteousness. I don't need to ask forgiveness from God. That's already done. He wants me to go make it right with the people that I stole from. I didn't want to. I said, So I made a deal with God. (laughs) You've been studying covenants. This is an old covenant type covenant. It's coming from what I will do instead of what he will do. (laughs) Lord, next time I go to Michigan, I'll take care of it. I never intended to go back in my life. (laughs) Okay. God wouldn't. (laughs) 
You try telling something to God and that he already knows the answer to. It just doesn't work out well. <laughs> and he kept working me over. And finally I said, you know, he started impressing me. Write a letter. Okay, I'll write a letter. I don't know where to mail it. So I'll write the letter. And so I sat down and I wrote, Dear Fellow Human. I didn't know who I was writing to. And I put Dear Fellow Human on it. And I wrote, There's wonderful power in the blood of Jesus. And then I described what I and my friend had done and and how God had changed my life. And I signed my name to it. What good is a confession if you won't sign your name? And God said, That's not enough. Okay. P.S. Tell me what I owe you for the old bottles. I'm broke going to school, paying my own way through college. This is not easy. Tell me what I owe you. Okay. I put it on there, and God said, mail it. Lord, I don't have an address. He said, mail it anyway. Have you ever had an argument with God? He can get pretty clear. He said, you know, impression, words, I'm not always sure which it is. You know where it is. Draw a map on the envelope. Draw a map for an address. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And so I drew a map, put a cross on there, and I could remember the name of two, two roads out in that area. And I said, the nearest farm to the northeast of this intersection. I put the name of the nearest town on there and I went to the post office, got a zip code, wrote the zip code down and I put a return address on it and then I had a struggle because when you let go of a letter in one of those letter boxes, they've made it where you cannot reach in and take it back out. And you may not know what it's like to let go of a written confession when you're with your name and address for a felony within the time period that they can uh, prosecute. When you let go of it, it's kind of final. And I walked away thinking, now what have I done? (laughs) Nothing happened. Time went by. I was expecting, I'm going to get this letter back with insufficient address stamped all over it. I have smeared one letter of a street name and it came back. Address unknown. I'm looking at it. The P got messed up in the ink on the word sapphire. That was all there was. Wrong with the address. I put a map on it and it doesn't come back. I figured somebody in the postal system kept it for one of the goofiest addresses they've ever seen for a souvenir. A couple of months later, I step into my room, and and where I was staying in this old hotel, they would just kind of open our door and toss the mail in on the floor because if they put it anywhere else, we wouldn't see it. So as we come in the door, there's mail on the floor. We pick it up. And so I come in, there's mail, and it's a letter to me from California. California. You see, what I didn't know is I mailed the letter to the wrong city and the wrong zip code. But when God, and I mailed it to Michigan, but when God wants it to work, 
the right guy in California gets it. The postal system can do amazing things when God's guiding. (laughs) So somehow, it gets to the right city in Michigan, and they forward it to the actual owner of that property in California. And he reads it, and he answers eventually. And when I opened it up, I didn't know this guy's name. When I open it up, I pull out a letter that says, Dear fellow human. It's my letter. My writing's light blue ink. There's dark blue ink all over the sides and the whole back. He says right on there, I don't know why I'm writing on this because I have plenty of paper. And he says, There is wonderful power in the blood of the Lamb. Thank you for giving me a Christian, Lord. And I get down to the PS. He says, yes, I do want you to pay me back. I want you to share the gospel with the boy who broke in with you. And then there's a PSS under that that says, I don't mean to embarrass you, but this check is to be used for tuition or whatever needs you may have. And I look back in the envelope and there was a check in there to help with my tuition. I was worried about what it was going to cost me. I was to find out later that that man was the drinking buddy of my friend's father. And he hated Christians, both of them hated Christians and Seventh-day Adventists in particular. And he is sending a letter back to Southwestern Adventist College. He knows. And he asked me in that letter, what about the student aid fund at your school? Could you give me information? So I sent all that back to him and never heard from him. You see, right after sending me that letter, he died. But before he got that letter, he was known as hating Christians. But the letter that I read was written by a Christian. I kind of have a suspicion that this guy that hated Christians and Seventh-day Adventists in particular had his heart melted when somebody was real about Christianity. I'm looking forward to eternity to find out. But I still had to share the gospel with my friend who I hadn't seen in years and it was pre-Facebook time and I didn't know where he lived. I heard he was in Colorado. (sighs) And one day I was preaching in Maryland and into the balcony of that church I see my friend Mark and his wife. And I'm thinking, man, if he's to walk out of this church while I'm preaching, I'm leaving the platform. This guy is not getting away. (laughs) And during the closing hymn, Mark gets up and he's headed out. I was supposed to have the benediction. There was a guy on the platform with me. I turned to him and said, hey man, benediction's yours, bye. And I was out of there during the song. (laughs) I met Mark at the bottom of the steps and I said, you're coming to my house for lunch. Mark was just like his dad. He'd grown 
to hate Christians. He didn't want anything to do with spiritual things. But he came to my house. He, the only reason he came from to my church is he figured out where I was and he wanted to see me. And that's how he knew he could find me. He didn't want me to talk about spiritual things, so I take him to a corner and there's this antique bottle case there full of old bottles. And I pick up a bottle and say, hey, Mark, remember the day we got this one? Happened to be a Parker's hair balsam with a paper label on the back of it. Yeah. I said, Mark, you need to know the rest of the story. I open my file cabinet and I pull out a letter that says, dear fellow human, I still have it. And you want to know why this guy sent the letter back? God had a reason. I said, Mark, read the light blue ink first, then the dark blue ink. I know in the light blue ink, he's going to get a gospel presentation. It worked once with the owner of the property. Maybe it's going to work with Mark now. (laughs) And uh, I can't talk to him about it, but he's reading it. He reads the light blue ink. He turns it over, reads the dark blue ink. He hands it back to me, and he doesn't want to talk about it. Okay, we talk about antique bottles. I put it back in the file where it is today. Mark goes home to Colorado. He's driving a borrowed motorhome. He's returning the motorhome to its owner, and he goes down an alley, and he makes a little turn a little bit too wide, and the bumper of that motorhome doesn't hurt the bumper any, but it puts a crease down the side of a car in the alley. Mark gets out, looks at it, looks around. There's nobody there. He gets back in the motorhome and drives away. He tells me later, Tim, all I could think of was that goofy letter you just had me read. So he went back to the car, wrote a note, and said, I was driving a borrowed vehicle when I damaged your car. I don't have any insurance, but I do body work on the side. Would you let me fix your car? And he puts his name and phone number on it. They call him up and they let him fix his car, their car. About a month later, Mark joins a gospel quartet. Mark's had a really hard life. As a truck driver, he was charged with four counts of manslaughter when somebody drove under his truck as he was turning around. After a long legal battle, he was vindicated. But his wife left him. She says, I didn't sign up for this. He's remarried to a lady that likes gospel music. And they're still singing gospel music. I don't know what the worst thing is that you've ever done. I don't know what the worst thing that's ever happened to you. But I can tell you this, you have a choice. You can live as a victim or let something from your past dominate you or you can give it to God and let him use it for good. He said he would use all things for good. Do you believe it? Then practice it. You give it to him, and then the adventure is on to see what he's going to do with it. I do know this. Most ministries to hurting people are founded by somebody who was hurt. God will turn the bad into good. But you know, when you do that, you're forgiven and renewed. Somebody could come up to me and say, hey, 
you don't do things our way, we're going to tell that you were criminal when you were a kid. I would laugh at him and say, who do you want to tell? I've already told the person that we wronged. The other people involved know it. I've told it to hundreds of people. Who do you want to help? (laughs) Do you see what just happened? When you give it to God and you don't hide from it anymore, all of a sudden, Satan has nothing to get you with. You've been set free. Forgiven and renewed, you're ready to meet Jesus when he comes. That's the good news. We're going to sing Redeemed, How I Love to Proclaim It. I love that song, don't you? If you're redeemed, you don't have to worry about it. God will use it for good. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you're big enough and strong enough to take the worst that we've done or the worst that's happened to us and use it for good. Lord, please take all of that. Set us completely free to be at peace with you and enabled to help others to be ready too. In Jesus' name I ask it and thank you. Amen.